was great to be with you guys once again. Uh, We are going to continue in our series over Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 27 this morning, which is on page 550 of that hardback Bible that is underneath your seat. Uh, If you don't know me, uh, my name is Jeremy Alford. I've been serving as your family pastor here for around seven years or so. Um, And just a heads up, we have a lot of kids here. Uh, last week, the numbers for Little Church, which is uh, three years old through second grade, there were 22 kids who went down for Little Church and three adults. And then in the nursery last week, which is, you know, zero to three, uh, we had, what was it, 10 or 11, 10 kids and three adults down there. Uh, so there's a pretty good chunk of us who just said, see ya, and left the room. Um, so that's, that's wild. I love it, um, but it's crazy, and if you want to help, we're not going to turn it down. Now, as many of you know, uh, my wife, my lovely wife, is very pregnant uh, with our third child. Uh, in fact, the due date is just six days away, so even me preaching this morning was a little dangerous. Uh, the due date is October 1st, but she truly is a champion, guys. Uh, she's had some hip problems and some back problems, but Man, she is amazingly strong. Uh, She does not complain at all. She does not demand any attention or special care. Uh, She is beautiful and resolute, uh, an absolutely wonderful wife and mother. I asked her if I could say this because here's the deal. Giving birth is not going to be fun. I mean, I don't know personally, of course, but it just doesn't look like it's going to be very much fun. But on the other side of that pain will be glorious new life. A precious baby boy who we have named Noah, and he will bring incredible amounts of joy. And I just can't wait to hold him. I just can't wait to to snuggle with him. You see, what I'm illustrating is one of the main themes in Isaiah that the result gives purpose to the pain. The result gives purpose to the pain. Ask any mother in the room, the joy of holding their precious newborn makes everything worth it. And in Isaiah chapter 27, God's people are reminded that there is a purpose to the pain that they must endure, endure difficulty with faith and hope while they wait on the promises of God. Now, before getting into the details of the chapter, I want to zoom out just a little bit because Isaiah 27 is the last chapter of what one scholar calls a four-part cantata with chapters 24, 25, and 26 being the first three parts. The cantata goes something like this. Chapter 24, there's world judgment. Chapter 25 is a song of triumph. Chapter 26, a song of praise. Chapter 27, then, is God's judgment upon his enemy and then protection for his people. Now, at the time that this was written, God's people were split, right? The northern kingdom was under Assyrian rule and under captivity, while the southern kingdom of Judah looked like they were next. They were weak, they were vulnerable, and Assyria was on the border, ready to pounce, ready to conquer. And so Isaiah is writing to a people that very clearly know what it's like to be going through pain, what it's like to be going through confusing times. 
And his goal is to provide hope and empower endurance during difficult moments. To provide hope and empower endurance during difficult moments. So church, have hope and endure knowing that God will keep you. He has promised to protect you and bring you safely through. And part of that protection involves destroying your enemies. And so verse 1 of chapter 27 opens with this epic battle between two infinitely unequal foes, the Lord and the Leviathan. Verse 1 says, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And so it starts with the phrase, in that day. And there's a certainty to those words, that no matter what, the Lord will defeat Leviathan. That the victor has already been declared. But what is the Leviathan? What is this thing? Well, we see this creature in a couple other places throughout Scripture, but the primary understanding of the Leviathan comes from Job chapter 41. According to that chapter, the Leviathan is a sea creature of great size, great strength, and great ferocity. It cannot be tamed. It's protected with impenetrable scales on the front and on the back. It has fearsome teeth, and anybody that even goes near the mouth, uh, it will die. Even mighty men are terrified of this thing. After all, Job 41 says that the Leviathan counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. So clearly, it's a great and terrible sea creature, but what does it represent? What is the point of the Leviathan here in Isaiah 27? Well, some scholars are going to argue that the fleeing, twisting dragon of the sea represents Israel's enemies, specifically the nations of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and this is very possible since the Egyptian pharaoh is described as the great dragon of the Nile and the dragon in the sea, according to the prophet Ezekiel. However, I believe it goes much, much deeper than this. Because throughout scripture, the devil is represented by a serpent, by a great dragon. So whether it's in the Garden of Eden or in the book of Revelation, the devil is associated with serpents and with dragons. And so I believe that the Leviathan represents Satan and sin and death. But why didn't Isaiah just say that? Why use the imagery here? Now, this might be a little bit of a, of a paradigm shift for you. But it's pretty cool, and I promise it connects, okay? So just, just track with me here. Imagery is all over the Bible. Throughout Scripture, God is referred to as a shepherd, and we are his flock. You and I are sheep. Again, why use that image? Why say that we are like sheep? Did God create everything and then look out at his creation and try to pick something that maybe helps illustrate his point? Like, mmm, mmm, <laughs> mm, I see a giraffe. I see a giraffe. Are my people like a giraffe? Well, no, probably not. Did God look at his creation and see a rhino and think, mmm, my people must be kind of like 
a rhinoceros? Well, no, no, maybe not. I'll keep looking. See, I don't think that God did it like that. Instead, God created sheep for the purpose of using them as an illustration. That God specifically gave sheep their characteristics so that we might better understand ourselves and how we relate to the Good Shepherd. So from the very beginning of time, God designed actual real-life sheep and shepherds in order to illustrate the type of relationship that we have with God. He didn't just look down after creation and pick sheep. He literally created them so that one day they will become the perfect illustration. And so this is beautiful imagery that proves that God is not a part of creation, but instead he is the amazing designer behind all of creation. Are you tracking with me? So, back to the Leviathan. Why use the imagery here? Why say Leviathan instead of Satan? It is so that we can imagine a great dragon or a great crocodile or whatever it is that people argue, and then we can compare this great and majestic and powerful beast to our great and majestic and powerful God and realize that this incredible creature falls incredibly short of God. And so the Leviathan exists so that we can look at it and be in awe of it and then realize it has absolutely nothing on God. Like, how crazy is that? Right, so I, I wanted to start the sermon with some reference to maybe like a damsel in distress and a knight in shining armor fighting this great dragon. And it's like some epic tale, kind of like, you know, Shrek or something. But this is not actually an epic tale, is it? Like, this is not some back-and-forth fight scene that has you on the edge of your seat as, as they're trading blows, and you're just not sure who's going to win. That's not, that's not at all what's happening here. The battle between God and this great beast is actually just one verse. That's it. And then it's over. The Lord is going to unsheathe his sword his merciless, massive, and mighty sword, as one author puts it, and he's going to punish the serpent of old as it flees from him, and then boom, the battle's over. It's not epic at all. And so what Isaiah is saying is that God, in that day, in the most certain of certainties, will defeat Satan and sin and death once and for all. Now imagine the hope that that gives. It gives us hope today. Imagine the hope that it would have given Isaiah's original audience. Whether it's Assyria knocking on the door or whether it's Satan trying to drag them into hell, just imagine the hope that they would have received knowing that history is moving forward to a set time when their enemy will be destroyed. So church... I have good news for you. God wins. In the end, God wins. So put your trust in Him. Now, the original readers of Isaiah looked forward to that day. 
In faith, they responded by believing in God, by believing that he will make good on his promises. For us, we also look forward to a future day when Satan will be fully and totally destroyed and sin and death will no longer be a reality, but there is a difference between us and the original audience. We can also look back in time. We look back to the cross where Christ won the battle, where Jesus said, it is finished. Because if the battle wasn't won on that, on that day, then Paul cannot write in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Or the author of Hebrews, he says it like this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He says that through death, that through the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Christ died on the cross, and in doing so, he destroyed the power of death. He destroyed the devil. And that's how the final song of our four-part cantata in Isaiah opens. It's this great crescendo ending in which God slays the dragon. And then God himself begins to sing in verse 2 as we move into a song about a vineyard. Now, Ryan, he did a good job reading for us earlier. He reminded us that in Isaiah 5, uh, Isaiah is singing about a vineyard. And he sings a song where the vineyard failed to produce the fruit that God longed to see. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of, of justice. And so the vineyard was destroyed. Invaders came in and took it out. It was torn down, left for nothing, because of the bad fruit that it was producing. And this is all in Isaiah 5. But the vineyard here is different in Isaiah 27. Not only is God singing now instead of Isaiah, but this is a pleasant vineyard rather than a wild one producing wild grapes. So we'll pick it up in verse 2. Verse 2 says, In that day... A pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. What a beautiful contrast here with verse 1. That God's sword is now put away and he is delighting in his vineyard. He's no longer wielding a sword. He is instead singing a song. What's it going to be like in that day? What's it going to be like? Just imagine walking with your Savior through a vineyard. There's row upon row of vines strapped to trellises. There are green rolling hills as far as the eye can see. The warm summer sun beating down on you. It's beautiful. And right beside you is the Lord singing a song of delight. 
the fruitfulness and pleasantness of this vineyard is due to the Lord. He says, I am its keeper. I watch over it and I water it. Have you ever been to somebody's house that has just a really nice garden? Like beautiful flowers that are in bloom year-round. There's no weeds inside. Everything is well manicured. Everything is well taken care of. And when, when you visited that home, did you ever bend down to the flowers and say, man, flowers, you're just doing such a good job. Flowers, you're great. I really respect you, flowers. Well, of course you didn't. You sang the praises of the caretaker, not the flowers. The flowers are nice, but it's the caretaker who gets the credit, not the flowers. I mean, make no mistake about it, in that day, it's all about the Lord. He is the great caretaker, and we will be singing His praises for His great work. And He will do the work so that in that day, He can have a vineyard that produces the fruit that He longs for. And Jesus says in John 15 that that day is in me. He says, I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser, and you are the branches, and you will bear much fruit if you abide in me. And then God, in his song, he gets a little spunky here in verse 4. Because he says, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. God's getting enthusiastic here as he says, I, I have no wrath, but I wish somebody would. Like, I wish that you would test me. Like, I wish that somebody would try and be violent in my vineyard because I am a good caretaker and I'm going to prove it. I will march against them. I'm going to burn them up. I will prove how good of a caretaker I am because in that day there will be fruit in my vineyard. In that day, the branches will flourish from the root of Jacob to the shoot of Israel. All things pleasant will flourish. So God's getting, he's getting a little spicy. Now musicians understand this, and unfortunately, especially drummers understand this. But sometimes you can get a little too enthusiastic. Yep. And you can steal a song, or you can accidentally increase the tempo of a song when you don't mean to. And God makes sure that we don't do that with his song. Because at the end of verse 5, he says, let them make peace with me. And he says it twice. Let them make peace with me. Listen, God is not legitimately inviting any kind of violence into his vineyard. Like, that's not happening. Verse 5 is telling us that God very much so prefers mercy over judgment. In fact, I made sure to write that in the margins of my Bible right next to verse 5, that God prefers mercy over judgment. And so instead of being a thorn or a briar that God burns up, make peace with him. That's what he wants. He wants you to make peace with him. 
Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 tells us that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and that they live. That is God's heart. God wants you to make peace with him, and the only way to do that is to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want peace with God? Do you want the perfect peace that Todd talked about last week? Then repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because this pleasant vineyard is only for those who are in Christ. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. There is only one way. Repent, church, and believe in the one true God. That and that alone can save. And so these first six verses, they would have provided hope, They would have empowered endurance for the original hearers as they were bearing God's discipline for not producing good fruit. They would have been watching Assyria come towards them as the rod of God's discipline. And this song, God's song, would have been a lifeline for them. Something for them to to hold on to. I wonder... Do future realities make any difference at all to your present circumstances? Do future realities make any difference to your present circumstances? What I mean is how does the promise of God defeating Satan change how you feel about going to work tomorrow? I mean, you're dreading going to work before church, knowing that Monday's right around the corner, and then you'll be dreading going to work after church, so I guess it just didn't really make a difference at all. Or, or how does the promise of God keeping you in a pleasant vineyard change how you feel about your marriage or about your parenting? I mean, it all felt hopeless before, All feels hopeless moving forward, so whatever. I guess it just doesn't really matter. Karl Marx once infamously said that religion is the sigh of the oppressed, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless condition, the opium of the people. In other words... Religion gives you relief from the pain and the suffering of this world by giving you the illusion of some far-off comfort that maybe, just maybe, can help you get through. Church, real faith is not like that. Real biblical faith relies on the future promises of God in that day, but not as an opiate to numb you in the middle of today. No, our hope is on the God who declares the beginning from the end. The God who before the foundations of the world announced things that have not yet come to pass. A God who proclaims certainties. A God who says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. 
Real faith is holding on to the future promises of God, keeping them in the forefront of your mind during these difficult moments. This type of faith looks at the promises of in that day and allows them to light our path for in this day so that one day we will be brought safely into that pleasant vineyard. That is real faith. And it's not an opiate to numb you. It gives you hope to endure the difficulty of the moment while you patiently await the promises of God. And so I ask you, are you troubled? Remember the promises of God that in that day Satan will be no more and you will bear much fruit. Are you struggling? Remember the promises of God that in that day Satan will be no more and you will bear much fruit. Church, are you in anguish? Are you in despair? Remember the promises of God. In that day Satan will be no more and you will bear much fruit. I'm not trying to numb you I'm not trying to convince you to ignore the problems of this life. I'm trying to give you hope. So there's this scene in Lord of the Rings. Can't get out of here without a movie reference. At the end of the third movie, The Return of the King, Sam and Frodo are on Mount Doom. If you're unfamiliar with the story, they've spent the entire trilogy trying to get this ring of power back to where it was made at Mount Doom in order for them to throw it in the lava and destroy it. And they're, they're almost there. They're almost there. It's been a long, terrible journey, full of great trials, full of setbacks, and they're so close. And at this point, Frodo is just overcome with exhaustion, and he tells Sam that he just can't go on. And then there's this interaction where Sam reminds him of home. He reminds him of the Shire. And Sam says, Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields and eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? And then Frodo says, no, (laughs) no, Sam, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark with nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see him with my waking eyes. And then Sam, in this heroic moment, says, then let us be rid of it once and for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but... I can carry you. I can carry you. It's this incredible moment of hope. Sam is remembering the Shire with the future hope of one day going back home. He's telling Frodo that there will be a day, and in that day, the orchards will be in blossom, and there will be strawberries and cream, and all things will be pleasant. 
And then he picks up Frodo and he literally carries him up the mountain. That's a picture of Isaiah 27. It's a picture of Isaiah 27 that God is promising a future day where Satan will be no more, where you will bear much fruit, and he's literally going to carry you into that day. That Christ is going to carry you into that day, and that is not an opiate for the religious. That is legitimate hope for those who are dealing with a Monday through Friday work week. That is legitimate hope for those who are struggling in their marriage and are just not sure if they're going to make it. And so listen to me. There will be a day when sin and death are no more and you abide in your Savior forevermore. And even though that reality does not make the troubles of this life go away, it most certainly gives you hope and empowers endurance and makes life bearable because he will hold you fast until that day. God will carry you. Do you trust him? Are you relying on him? Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In that day, there will be glory that hasn't even been revealed. So in this day, have hope and trust in God. So I opened this morning by talking to you about my wife and the upcoming delivery. I told you that the result gives purpose to the pain. But so far, I've only talked about the result. That the Leviathan will be no more and that God will keep you in his vineyard. But now, as we move forward in the chapter, Isaiah begins to talk about the pain. The pain that leads to the results. And so God will provide hope. He will empower endurance by keeping you. And now he will do so by pruning you. Let's read verses 7 through 11. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary." a habitation deserted and forsaken. Like the wilderness, there the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. So in this section, verse 7 starts by reminding Israel that God has never dealt with them like he dealt with their enemies. That God never fully destroyed Israel, but rather through exile, he disciplined them. Or you could say that he pruned them. As I mentioned before, 
The northern kingdom has been conquered and it seems just a matter of time before the southern kingdom realizes the same fate. So it would seem to them that God has turned his back on them. And in this context, Isaiah asks two questions. Has God struck you, Israel, the same way that he struck your enemies? And has God killed you, Israel, the same way that he killed those who killed you? It's all confusing, right? Essentially, Isaiah is reminding them that you're different. You are different. And that God's people, man, they're really struggling here because when they look at the reality of their situation, they don't really feel like they're different. They see no difference at all between them and the surrounding pagan nations. God's discipline seems every bit as severe as God's judgment. And then in verse 8, Isaiah contrasts God's people with God's enemies. And so in the case of God's people, he dealt with them harshly, but it was measured out. In the case of God's enemies, he dealt with them harshly, but it was not measured out. The destruction was endless. So God's enemies are destroyed for their unrighteousness. But the difference is that God's people, they were disciplined for their unrighteousness. You see, that's the difference. Destruction and discipline. They were both dealt with harshly, but one ends in eternal devastation and the other ends in purification. They're as different from each other as heaven is from hell because that is the difference. One points to heaven and the other points to hell. Israel, they just can't see the end of it all. They are blinded by their immediate pain and confusion and suffering. And that's totally fair. <laughs> that's totally fair because discipline here looks like judgment and salvation side by side. So in judging them, God removes them from the land, right? In saving them, God preserves a remnant. They're side by side. In judging them, God sends them into exile. In saving them, he removes idolatry from their lives. Judgment and salvation side by side. And then in verse 9, we see this type of discipline as a very good thing. It says, therefore by this. But what is he talking about? What is this? Well, this is the measured out discipline of the Lord. And so it's saying there in verse 9, therefore by the measured out discipline of the Lord, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. So the purpose of the discipline was to remove what was offensive so that God, God's forgiveness would be possible. And I think that this is still true today. You guys tracking? The purpose behind the pain is to bring about repentance. The purpose of the trial, the purpose of the hardship, the purpose of the confusion 
is to bring about repentance. Israel needed to repent by destroying its idols, as the second half of verse 9 indicates. They needed to crush the stones of the altars. They needed to remove the Asherah poles and incense altars. They needed to repent of idolatry, and God was willing to send them into exile in order to teach them that. But then there's the tricky part of verse 10. Verse 10 says that there is a city that is destroyed. A fortified city that is left silent, it's empty, the houses have been abandoned, the streets are overgrown with weeds, and instead of being this great, awesome city, it's now being used as a place for cows to graze. But what is this city? What does it represent? Is it the city of man that Isaiah speaks about just a couple of chapters before in chapter 24? A city that represents the arrogance and opposition of humanity? It might be. I don't think so. I would say I'm about 70% certain that it's the cities of Judah and Israel being destroyed. Talking very specifically about either Samaria or Jerusalem. I think... In order for these idolatrous altars of verse 9 to be destroyed, the cities that housed those altars had to also be destroyed and the people carried into exile. Now, undoubtedly, this is harsh. That's why it's sandwiched, as Isaiah often does, in between two sections of really good news. The Lord is being harsh with them, But that's better than destroying them, right? Even though exile meant that their cities would be laid waste, it would be worth it because their hearts would not be destroyed. Even though it's harsh, the Lord is separating them from their idols, which is ultimately a very loving thing to do. You see, the very presence of discipline is evidence that God loves you. And he wants you to mend your broken ways. We must never forget that the motive behind God's discipline, the motive behind the pain is always love. And so remember, even if you're going through a difficult time, there is a purpose in the pain. In pruning you, God is showing you His love and drawing you into His promises. So if your pain is teaching you to merely grit your teeth, simply get through the hard moments, then you're missing the lesson entirely. And you have failed to learn what God wants to teach you. Trust the the Lord's discipline, and see that His discipline is removing idols from your life, and that is a gift of grace. God used pain and suffering to bring Israel back to Him, and He uses pain and suffering in the exact same way now to bring you back to Him. So know that whatever you're in the middle of, whatever trial you're going through right now, God is using it. 
That trial was made very specifically for you to shape you more into the image of God, to bring you closer to Him. Even in the pain of the everyday, ordinary life, God is using it to show you your weakness and your great need for Him. So, that boss, that coworker that you just can't stand, or that super frustrating relationship full of drama that you're dealing with right now, and it's, count, it's, it's leading to countless sleepless nights, or that chronic health problem, all of them are being used by God in order to bring you closer to Him, to cause you to lean on Him and to rely on God. Church, I often wonder, even in my own life, if it wasn't for the pain, if it wasn't for the confusion, would I even realize that I need a Savior? Like, if it wasn't for the difficult earthly moments, would I even realize at all that I have an eternal problem? Or would I just go on in ignorance? Church, do not let the trials of this life teach you to simply push through and get to the other side. I mean, if that's all that you learn from them, then you have failed. Instead, learn that hardships are a gift of grace, teaching you to rely more and more on God, as Romans 5, verses 3 through 5 says it like this. It says, We also glory in our sufferings, Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in our chapter, God is giving hope. God is empowering endurance by making us aware that as you're bearing fruit you will be pruned in order to bear more fruit. And so far, we've seen that God will keep you. We've seen that God will prune you. And now we will see that God will harvest you. He will keep you. He will prune you. And He will harvest you. The chapter ends with two final verses. Verse 12 and 13. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And so as the chapter ends, so does our four-part cantata. And Isaiah concludes by focusing once more on the present day, but looking forward. So again, he uses the same phrase two times in that day. The first in that day involves threshing, which is the beating out of seeds from their husks. However, in this context, we shouldn't really think of it as a beating. Instead, it's an act of mercy where the people of God are very carefully harvested out from within the borders of the promised land to come and worship at the holy mountain of Jerusalem. And this will happen one by one. This either indicates the scarcity of the number, or, and I think this is probably more accurate, uh, 
the very singular care of God over each and every believer. He's very careful in his attention and care of every single believer. And then in the second in that day, expands the exact same process beyond the borders of the promised land as established by the river and the brook to now include Assyria and Egypt. This time, the picture that's given is that of a trumpet being blown, calling the exiles home. And so all believers everywhere will be called home to worship the Lord on his holy mountain. It's this beautiful ending. And it is Christ who will make it happen. In fact, Christ is all over this chapter. So I'm, I'm going to finish up here by putting all of my attention on Jesus. Because it is Jesus whose death destroyed Satan, that ancient serpent, and freed his people from death. It is Jesus' resurrecting power that continues to crush Satan even to this day. It is Christ who guarantees the fruitfulness of God's vineyard by being the vine as we are the branches. Isaiah 27.4 says that God has no wrath, but that is only true because Christ is our propitiation, meaning that he absorbed the wrath of God on my behalf, on your behalf, as he hung on the cross so that there is no wrath left over. In Christ alone are the remnants of Israel chosen by grace and finally saved. In Christ alone are the sanctified people of God assembled and gathered together with the trumpet call of, of 1 Thessalonians 4. It is Christ who assembles his people to worship God in the new Jerusalem. And so this whole chapter is secretly all about Jesus. And so we're going to end then with a time of reflection in which we put all of our attention on Jesus. And in that, my goal is to provide hope. My goal is to empower endurance during difficult moments by focusing on Christ. To focus on and celebrate Jesus' defeat of Satan, sin, and death. To have hope and empower endurance by focusing on abiding in Jesus as you bear fruit in this world. To provide hope and empower endurance by focusing on crushing your idols with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that lives within you. This whole thing is about Jesus. It is Jesus who keeps you, it is Jesus who prunes you, and it is Jesus who harvests you. And so for the next couple minutes, let's just give our full attention to Jesus, and then I'll pray.